This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Hello and welcome to another podcast for our skill acquisition series. And uh, this time I'm going to be talking about the use of language in coaching. And I have a fabulous guest with me today, Nick Winkleman. Are you happy to introduce yourself for us? Uh, Marion, absolutely. So, well, first and foremost, it, it's a pleasure to be on. I appreciate the opportunity. So, uh, very briefly, I'm the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. That's a very fancy term that I get to work with a lot of athletic performance coaches and, and medical colleagues and rugby coaches to make sure we're driving uh, high performance for all of our players across codes and levels. And in parallel with that, I think the reason you and I are chatting today, I've, I've recently authored a book. Uh, the Language of Coaching, the Art and Science of Teaching Movement. And over the last, I'd say, decade plus as a strength conditioning coach, I've just fell in love and found great curiosity and interest in studying how uh, our language, our words uh, impact the way our athletes, our, our clients, our patients learn to move. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. And and yes, I have your book on my table. <laughs> it's one of the few <laughs> that I... I invested in this year and and it's stunning. It's visually stunning as well, which I love. And you know, I love a book that you want to sort of pick up and hold and and looks good. Um so great, thank you. So we've got quite a lot in there. I know you you work you actually work with with sports, um, you work with athletes, um, that you're an SNC coach, which for me is fascinating from a skill acquisition perspective because they tend to get sort of pulled apart a little bit too much. Mm. And um and, and I found your book fascinating, um, mainly because of a little pre-conversation we had beforehand. I just remembered being blown away in my first year psychology and in, in understanding, looking at um, some research into eyewitness testimony and realizing how powerful language is and how much it influences um, how we feel and what we think and what we remember. And so that it's actually something that's very meaningful and alive within us. And so I'm really keen to start off with asking you why you think the way we use language as a coach is so important. Well, it's it's interesting because if you if you take that question and you put it in a slightly different way and ask ourselves how as coaches, how do we primarily influence the movement learning, the skill development, the skill learning of the athletes we work with. Now, the first thing we recognize is we're not puppeteers, right? We don't literally have strings on their body, moving them all around in all the varied positions we'd like them to get into. But let's be honest, Marianne, every coach wishes at some point in their career, they had those strings to put the body in the exact position. So we know we can't physically manipulate them. So there's this space, there's this space between us and the athlete, yet we know intuitively we have this tremendous capacity, I'm going to use that word again, to influence. And what we come to identify is, well, we have two primary ways that we can influence. We can influence in the environments we design, the environments we invite the athlete to enter into from a skill development perspective, recognizing that movement at the end of the day and movement skills specifically are the dance between an individual in the context they find themselves in, right? Stairs invite you to walk up them. A chair invites you to sit down on it. A glass of water invites you to reach out and quench your thirst. In all cases, 
the relationship between me and the context I find myself in gives birth to a specific pattern of movement. But within that, we recognize that can only go so far. It requires the athlete to pick up on all the varied cues, right, within the physical context, within the physical environment. And so we have to, at times, we have to, at times, help, if you would, almost like marriage counseling, marry animals, like marriage counseling, get the athlete and the context to work better together. And the way we do that is, again, not with strings, but with language. With our language, we can invite the athlete to focus here versus there, focus on this versus that. And so our language very much so is meant to help take the athlete's attentional spotlight and focus it on the most relevant features of possibly their body or the environment they find their body in to allow them to consistently progress and improve. And certainly we use language for far more than just the development of movement. We use it to establish rapport and relationship. We use it to establish motivation and drive it forward. So all of the psychosocial pieces are very much so dependent on our behavior and our communication. But certainly when it comes to the topic of today's discussion, we use language specifically to draw the focus into that context such that the person, the athlete, can build that movement relationship that we call human performance. Steve, you've talked a lot there actually about attentional spotlights and um, directing attention to help them pick up information and cues. So almost, I think, did you use Mac, like marriage counselling, which I love this idea, <laughs> this idea of supporting a, a, a connection, an interaction between the athlete and and what and their environment, and that would 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 include other people. Um. And I'm just, I'm just thinking about the role of that maybe in intention as well as attention. We can, well, I'd really, I'd like to come back to attention. But I'm just of sort of thinking that we also, um, that maybe there's something really powerful in that shaping of intentions as well with language. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And let me share a story to illustrate, I think, all the various nodes you're touching on, and then we can start to pick it apart. And so if I go back to the beginning of COVID, my son at the time was four, and he was just coming to the age where he really wanted to learn to ride his bike. So we got his bike out of the garage with the stabilizers on, and he's starting to ride around the neighborhood. His older sister is already on a two-wheeler. And so that just starts to unfold naturally. Now, for anyone who's either seen a child learn to ride a bike or they themselves worked with their child to ride a bike, very much so at least in my experience of it, they don't want a lot of help, right? They're gonna tell you when to hold, they're gonna tell you when to release. And even if I attempt to coach him, it's not gonna go down well unless he invites it in. And I think we could put a pin in that and talk about that from a collaboration perspective later on. And so fast forward over a couple of weeks, inevitably we get the stabilizers off and he's riding down the road. But there's a problem. As my son tries to speed up, as my son tries to speed up, he continues to go into kind of this wide serpentine type motion and inevitably he falls off the bike. And so even though he can ride it, he can't quite ride it at the speed he wants. He's starting to get frustrated. And Marianne, right, here's the marriage counseling. His relationship with the bike 
his relationship with the bike insofar as him improving his ability to navigate it has stagnated. And let's just pause on that and transcend a little kid learning to ride a bike and think about all the athletes for those listening that you've worked with. You know, how often have you watched someone naturally progress at a skill just by showing up every day and engaging in the learning environments you've created, but then they stagnate. And it's at that point of stagnation that a coach becomes really important because we can pick up on, to use your word, Marianne, we can pick up on the information that we know is relevant, that if you would, is the key to unlock the progress the athlete seeks. And so if we go back into the story with my son, what I noticed is he was overturning his handlebars. And so there was information in the handlebars, had he focused on them, that he would have been able to recognize, if I keep these handlebars stable, then I'm going to go straight ahead as I speed up. But if I start to move them around, I'm going to go side to side and fall over. And so he wasn't picking up on this. One thing to recognize is I tried to give him enough time to sort it out on his own. But once I saw his motivation and his desire start to fall off, again, we can put a pin in that, talk about that later, I stepped in. And so at that point, I had to figure out, am I going to use some kind of environmental constraint or am I going to use more of an informational constraint using language? Now, I chose an informational constraint using language. Here's why. When I put my son on the sidewalk, right, the sidewalk was a logical environmental constraint. Why? Well, it's narrower than the road. By the very nature of it visually, he's not going to be able to go side to side nearly as much. But guess what happens? He got scared and desire went down further. And so the environmental constraint didn't seem to be on. So I went with the informational constraint using language, trying to improve his relationship with the environment. And so we're a musical family. And I asked my son, I said, listen, uh, Madden's his name. Show me what your handlebars are doing when they're loud. And he kind of looked up. He sat up straight and he moved them around really quickly. I said, beautiful. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I said, Madden, show me what your handlebars. And I dropped my voice and my posture when they're quiet. And again, he kind of hunched down and he held them very still. I said, awesome. I said, now, when you speed up your bike to catch your sister on her morning walk, do you think the handlebars should be loud or quiet? And he said, without even a second thought, they should be quiet. And so from that moment on, I could hear him saying it to himself, like self-talk, which certainly, Marianne, we, we, we could get into. Self-talk, he said, quiet, quiet. Or I'd yell, keep them quiet. And after a day or so, he was speeding up and down the road, up and down hills. It was like we had unlocked the next level of progress. We might call that a light bulb moment when it comes to learning and movement skill development. And so what we did there is we as the coach, in this case me, I observed the relationship of the skill within the context. Once I identified that the learning environment had done all it could and my son could no longer pick up on the information needed to progress, I had to come up with a way to get him that information in, the, in, a, in an effort that is going to be age appropriate skill relevant and not put too much thinking on the brain. I kind of usually refer to this as clean cognitive fuel. And so I used an analogy to implicitly draw his attention to the handlebars in doing so, giving him language to trigger that informational awareness, that spotlight, that intention. And so that brings us to the final point. And then we'll let you jump in here, Marianne. And, that, and that's the difference between intention versus attention. Attention is right. That's that general phenomenon 
of where we are focusing, either intrinsically or extrinsically, at any point in time. It's fixed in so far as how much can go in there, and it represents phenomenologically our conscious experience. Intention, I would argue, is the application of attention to achieve a specific goal. And so oftentimes when we use a coaching cue, and that's exactly what I did with my son, I used a coaching cue by way of an analogy, we are trying to bring attention into intention to achieve a specific end, to achieve a specific outcome. And in this case, the intention is to focus on an information source or achieve a given outcome in pursuit of the movement skill I'm improving. Gosh, thanks. I've, do you know why I'm just thinking about my uh, teaching my brother I took the stables off my brother's bike and then how much that taught me about my son as well and it's such a good analogy isn't it there's and there's so much in there I I think for me well and I know we've sort of pinned motivation and a little bit about the relationship and, and it'd be great to come back to that but I think what stands out for me there is that you talked about um you know not not being a puppeteer that we use language in a way that um is supporting that mm. interaction and and what was really clear, and I love the idea of getting him to explore what loud and quiet might mean for him to um, to wait for that coaching moment instead of trying to be a puppeteer, which you clearly didn't. And that language is not is not puppeteer language. If we sort of continue that analogy a little bit, yeah, so you're not yeah, telling him yeah. what to do with his hands or his body or or what he should be doing when you've just, you've given him something that's a much um, softer focus is kind of the word that's coming to mind that yes. like you said, allows him to, um, to problem solve, to meet that outcome. Of the can, we, can we unpack that Marianne just for a yeah. moment? Because I think, I think you're hitting on something that is at the heart of where a well-intentioned coach can go possibly awry with their use of language. And, and let, me, let me just unpack this for a second. Let me start with an experience that I think every coach listening, if not already, well, well, if they haven't had this experience, Marianne, they need to be on the podcast because they know something we don't. But I think most will have had this experience. And that is an athlete will come up to them. And, and I remember there's a famous series of quotes in the inner game of tennis by Timothy Galway that highlight this experience. And I believe every coach can relate to it where an athlete says something to the following effect. I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Or I know what you want me to do. Or I even, I understand you coach. I just don't know how to do it. And what can make a statement like that even more frustrating is when you know the athlete has all the physical assets. You know they're strong enough, powerful enough, mobile enough, stable enough, so on and so forth. But something about the skill they're learning or the skill in a given context that they're expressing, it, it's just not coming together. And you as a coach are trying to figure out the pathway to unlock that door, to unlock that progress. Now, I want to go back to the way this is normally phrased, and there's two specific words I want to highlight. 
And that is, I know what to do, W-H-A-T, I know what to do, I just don't know how to do it. So that suggests, and, and we know this in terms of philosophy of mind, that there are, are two distinct kind of knowledge structures, ways of knowing or ways of expressing what you know, and that is knowledge of what and knowledge of how. And so knowledge of what is oftentimes the province of language. I can look at, let's say, a movement. Let's say it's rowing, for example. I was talking to someone about rowing and queuing the other day. And we can break down biomechanically what should happen. You know, moment to moment, we can outline where the body should be, where the seat should be, where the boat should be, where the oar should be. And we can do this in almost a step-by-step -step fashion in the context of, let's say, a video review. Now, this is giving the athlete very important knowledge structures around what effective rowing needs to look like. But being able to verbally describe what rowing needs to look like is not the same as actually being able to do it. Let's double down on that through an example. How many coaches know an athlete who was a brilliant athlete converted to being a coach, but they failed. They failed because they knew how to do everything, but they didn't know what was actually going on. And thus they couldn't describe it to another person. They couldn't build the relationship, the trust, the buy-in, because they didn't have the language structures to describe what actually needs to go on, in this case, to row effectively. And so as a coach, then that suggests to us that we need to be able to give the athlete knowledge of what to do, that becomes remarkably important for the inquisitive athlete to build trust, to build relationship, to prove to them, I know what I am doing. However, we also need to be able to now use language to help them figure out how to do it. And the only way I can figure out how to do something is by engaging with the environment I am moving in. And so if the only language tools you give me to guide my intention are to think about where my elbow needs to be, where my knee needs to be, where my trunk needs to be moment to moment, I have no way to access that in the whole form. The only way I ever can access movement in the whole form is when my mind is not on the movement itself. It needs to be on the outcome the movement is trying to achieve. Only then can my entire body, we kind of call it the gestalt, right? The, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. It's only when I focus outwardly that the whole body can work like a, a, a concert, like an orchestra together to achieve those ends. And so knowledge of what tends to be very technical, very anatomical, very break it down. And we need to give the athlete those knowledge structures, but we have to recognize that those are not the knowledge structures I need when I'm actually performing the skill. That's where I need to develop knowledge of how in all of my work has been trying to help coaches recognize the communication structure, the coaching language that invites, that's the right word here, invites the athlete out of their body into the context and figuring out ways, ways to phrase things such that they can develop a better movement relationship with the context they're moving in. Uh, 
I've got so many notes I've written down while you've been talking there, Nick. I've got a few questions as well. I'm please, sure you won't mind please. me asking. So I'm really I um the 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 knowledge you know of what versus knowledge of how. I, I don't know if you saw it, um, but Holland Duratal released a paper um just recently um about ta- tackle technique knowledge doesn't execute into um into being able to do it properly. Uh, properly. <laughs> there I can't you go. The, yes. Yeah. yeah, and and the and what they the key things they found there um, were that uh, so for those of you listening, um, I think this was on rugby, wasn't it? That it was um, that the rugby academy, these academy rugby players, um, they had a high awareness and declarative knowledge about the importance and also about what what they should be doing, what the technique was, um, but they weren't actually able to do it. So they weren't they weren't able. That didn't necessarily mean that awareness didn't relate to their technique proficiency when they were actually in training or in performance. And and so I guess, and this is probably where we we, we go into slightly murky water. I, I I know and I recognize certainly from my own experience that athletes want to know the what. And like you say, they expect you to know that as a coach, that they it builds trust, they um they recognize that that gives you sort of credibility. I'm wondering though if if um, it's worth as you know is a coach examining how much of that knowledge they actually need to perform and how much um, they think they need because that's just something that we've always used you know that declarative knowledge in coaching and um, so maybe that we're a little bit sideways there that um, there's there's a not there's knowledge what that might not necessarily help and I'm thinking about taking back conscious control of movements under you know high high stress and things like that as well yeah yeah i mean both are important let me be quoted as saying that i think both are important but like any medicine if we can use that crude analogy like any medicine it's all about getting the dose right and you know for some coaches they're all knowledge of what in their mind knowledge of what is synonymous with knowledge of how, and that if I can just explain the biomechanics to you, break down step-by-step what needs to happen, as in your rugby tackle technique example, that is enough. And what I'll say is if the athlete succeeds under those coaching conditions, it's despite it, not because of it. Now that might sound harsh, but let me be clear that that language is not what the athlete is going to be able to use in any kind of online, onboard, real-time way while they're tackling someone. They're going to be picking up and benefiting from the physical environment itself. And so many coaches believe that their coaching language is, is improving the learning process. Well, in many cases, it's not making any difference. And in some cases, it's making it worse. And for me, it's a matter of how do we actually bring language into the fore such that it benefits. It's a force multiplier. It's a catalyst for getting more out of the learning environment than would otherwise naturally be available. And so to the degree that I'm giving an athlete knowledge of what, Marianne, I think you've already identified it. It's to build rapport, relationship, credibility. Um, It's to provide explanation. I I think that knowledge of what and knowledge of how, they're not these separate entities, right? They work together. You know, if I'm working with someone on sprinting, something I do quite often, I might give some very ambiguous analogy. Hey, as you get off the line, 
I need you to gradually rise like a jet taking off. Now, for someone who's au fait with sprinting, they'll understand why I use that analogy. But if you're a young, you know, 19-year-old rugby player who's never been taught how to sprint, that's going to go right over your head. And so I might show a video of someone sprinting. And I might show a video A versus B, one where it's done ideal and one where it's not so ideal. And I might open up a, do a dialogue. We might call it a knowledge of what dialogue. And I could equally just do a demonstration, Marianne, instead of showing a video. So pragmatically do whatever you'd like. And I asked the athlete, well, well, what's different about these? Like, well, that, that person seems to be pushing more or extending more. I'm listening to what they're saying. And so inevitably we get to the point where there's the shared realization that pushing the ground away keeping a nice long body and gradually rising really helps you sprint well. Now, what has that done? That's given them buy-in. That's given them, as you said, declarative knowledge around what and why they're doing this thing. And what that allows them to do is when I give them the analogy, gradually rise like a jet taking off, where I haven't told them head, shoulders, knees, and toes how to move. I haven't tried to use language to puppeteer them. Rather, I've given them an intentional framework to move as if, literally as if I am mirroring a jet taking off, which puts my mind in a proverbial kind of external virtual world because it's not placed on my body itself in terms of moving one joint over the other. I've now given that athlete a way to think while they move that allows the whole movement to come together in an authentic way that aligns to what we might call a technique that will promote the expression of speed. And so in that case, I've coupled knowledge of what to gain buy-in, understanding, and why, such that I get more out of the knowledge of how. And, and I just, I would encourage people to pause and even re-listen to that again. It is so important. We are not saying one is better than the other. But what we can say is a lot of coaches, they lack the refinement and the understanding of how to deploy language that falls into that province of knowledge of how, knowing how to create cues that in the spirit of our marriage counseling metaphor, connect the athlete to the environment they're moving in, rather than causing them to become disconnected from the environment by bringing them back into the body, which is the province of language that we are qualifying as knowledge of what. I, I'm hoping that people take your cue there and have a pause and perhaps re-listen because there was so much in that. And I'm just thinking about where I'm where I'm interested in going next. And um, and I do want to come back to motivation, although that is I think that's influenced in and and threads through most of this. Some of the things that that really came through for me there was. When you were talking, you're talking about having that dialogue, that it is a co-creation. And am mm. I right in assuming that you would encourage a coach then, if, they, if they're going to distill even further, that they look at finding a cue that an athlete can use in action that, that the athlete has ownership of and means something to them? Yeah, absolutely, Marianne. I mean, this is... This is the one thing that for me was very difficult to convey when I was writing the language of coaching, but it's something that comes through very evidently in my, in my own coaching. And that is I've come to the realization that if I'm going to be using language 
to influence your onboard focus, which is to say what you focus on while you move, I'm going to have a significantly higher odds of, of success if I'm using language that makes sense to you. If I'm using words that you normally use that references experiences and analogies that are part and parcel to your lived experience. And so if I'm only speaking out of my experience, I want to say that again, if I'm only speaking out of my experience, then I'm losing the opportunity to take the athlete's experience and repurpose it to help them learn this new thing that we're both there to help them get better at. And so let me use a couple examples to brighten this idea of how I approach collaboration when it comes to queuing. And we haven't defined it yet, so let, let me define it. When we are using the word cue, we're using it as the reference of the, the last thing the athlete hears or thinks about before they move. And notably, a verbal cue is actually meant to manifest itself as actually what the person intends to do, what they focus on while they are moving. And so this is a very specific language structure or type of language that we are referring to here. And again, to, to reference back to what we've been talking about, it falls into this knowledge of how structure. It's meant to help them proceduralize the movement, actually bring it into real life, make them move better. And so let's say I'm working with an athlete, once again, to use my example of sprinting on sprinting. Now, the way collaboration comes through in my own coaching is very much so process-driven. And so day number one, if I'm working with an athlete one-on-one, -on -one, but mind you, I also do this in large groups, and we can talk about that later on. But if I'm working with an athlete one-on-one -on -one, and I'm watching them sprint, the first thing I'm going to do, and this should be true of any skill, is I'm, I'm going to watch them do enough repetitions where I understand their authentic movement style. I think too often we coach verbally before we watch visually. We're coaching something that we haven't even seen yet. And that's a mistake I used to make all the time. I'm putting thoughts in their mind that's meant to affect a movement that I haven't actually built a relationship with visually. And so the first thing I do is build a visual relationship with the way the person moves. And as we're doing this, I'm asking them questions. How do you feel? Have you ever sprinted before? Or have you ever been coached to sprint before? I might ask some questions on, you know, how do you like to be coached? Different things just to start to suss out where this person is at and how they like to interact with a coach in a learning environment. And so let's say I'm working with that athlete who lacks hip extension. They have that temper tantrum, really quick leg action. They're taking 10 steps when they only need to take five. And so I'm trying to teach them to push more. Now, the first thing I might do before I collaborate on a cue, especially if it's a new person, is I'm going to give them a, a run-of-the-mill basic cue directed at the error I want to help them overcome. And mind you, it's going to be directed at something in the environment. We call these external cues. And so I might say, hey, on your next repetition, I want you to focus on rapidly pushing the ground away. And now in that case, here's the first node of collaboration. I'm going to ask them, so what are you going to focus on? And let's say they repeat back to me. Sometimes they might say, well, I didn't hear the cue. <laughs> so that's always good to know. The other thing they might say is, is the following. Oh, you want me to focus on pushing the ground away. Now, you see what happened there. This happens all the time if you pay attention. I said focus on rapidly pushing the ground away. And my proverbial athlete said focus on pushing the ground away. And so when I look at rapidly versus pushing, that person emphasized the word 
pushing. And so I'm going to bring that into my vocabulary. Yes, I want you to focus on pushing the ground away. Or I might say focus on pushing the ground away as explosively as you can. So the impetus behind rapidly is still suggested in the queue. And so that's the first node of collaboration. I'm going to give them the opportunity to mirror the queue back to me, recognizing that they might put it into their own words. Now, let's say I'm using this queue over a couple repetitions, and I'm not quite happy with how the queue is living, existing within their movement pattern, which means to say at, at the very least, the movement hasn't changed. At the worst, maybe it's gotten a little bit worse. And so in this case, I might say, listen, we need to get more push. We need to get more extension. Maybe I even show them a video. I've asked you to focus on pushing the ground away. What cue do you think could help you achieve this? And this is where we start the dialogue. We start the collaboration. And so this would then lead us to having them bring their language into the fore. And I can help them almost in a motivational interviewing type format, get to a cue that works for them, that makes sense to them, but still captures the underpinning meaning around the error we are trying to course correct on. And so that is just one example or one way that you might see it come through. In a group context, and then I'll pause, in a group context, it's very difficult to do that with 15, I, the other day I had 22 players on the field working on speed. But if I'm working with people week in, week out, I'm constantly scanning. I'm constantly using global cues to the whole group that I think are gonna make the biggest difference. And on the natural breaks that I build into the training, you know, the 30 second to one minute breaks, I'm gonna select two or three athletes that I might have those micro conversations where I might give them a cue, ask them to repeat it back or give them a cue and say, how would you put this into your own words? If someone is really struggling, Marianne, then I will visit with them at the end of a session. And this has happened with a number of players I work with. We've discussed the, the outcome we're seeking to achieve, and I've given them a bit of homework. I said, when you come back next week, I want you to come back with two or three different cues, two or three things you think you can focus on to overcome that error and get the outcome that we are pursuing. Now, believe me, we could riff on this for another couple hours on different strategies, but I think that starts to brighten the idea of how we collaborate on identifying cues and getting to the words that work for the person. I'm just um, I'm thinking about how some of the words and again, again going back to the the my sort of first introduction really to the power of language in in my undergraduate psychology classes, and um, one of the things I remember um, that that made a difference with my son particularly was allowing him to find words that he kind of felt. I'm, I'm kind of, the word empowered is sitting on my tongue and I don't particularly like it, but I'm going to go with it because I can't think of another one. So I'm thinking about paddling and getting, he would, he would paddle like, um, you know, animals or superheroes that he was into at the time. And that would help him almost embody a completely different way of moving. And I'm just wondering whether or not you also would use some collaboration and language, maybe even with younger or older um, athletes you work with, finding words that they, it, it was like these these were words that he resonated with that 
it was almost almost like a like a, in a drama way that allowed him to be different in the way he moved. I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, you know you are. You're making sense at a very ancient, deep level that we can talk about here in a moment. But let's let's address the question firsthand. Um, one thing that I do with my athletes is again when you're working with groups, just just the reality you can't get to everybody as you might in a, in a track and field session where maybe you're working with a smaller group or even one-on-one. And so I find that athletes are remarkably, even young athletes, remarkably intuitive around movement, both their own movement, but certainly being able to watch someone else move. Like, I don't know why, but that just doesn't look right. Or equally, I don't know why, but that looks perfect. So we have to give them more credit. In fact, they can help become mini coaches, especially when you're working with large groups of young kids. And this secondary benefit here is crowd control. And so what I'll do is I will have athletes partner up. And this is usually a couple sessions in, once we've established some baselines, knowledge of what around what we're doing, expectations and outcomes. And as long as I've had time to work with each athlete and give them the one or two big rocks they're chasing. And I'll say something to the following effect. I want you to spend the next minute. This is usually earlier in the session. We finished movement prep and we're right before our first set of activities, first set of sprints, let's say. I want you to take a minute with your partner and I want each of you to talk through what you are going to focus on while you are moving to overcome or to achieve the outcome that is your key priority. And so they'll do that and you'll watch and the discussion and the body language will be, be very dynamic. It'll almost be, as you say, like acting. And they're trying to summon the ideas, experiences that really speak to them that are going to help them move better. Now, it's very easy, especially for younger athletes to not take this seriously. So Marianne, here's what I do. I will call on various groups and I won't say, Marianne, what are you going to focus on? I will say, Marianne, what is your partner going to focus on? And so that's just a little clever trick that we can use just to make sure that people are really authentic and they're invested in the activity, that it's not just a checkbox exercise. It's actually meant to help them prime the pump. And so what this does is it helps with athlete collaboration. It helps with motivation. It supports autonomy. It's about them, not me, but it also gives me a framework and a foundation to walk through, to listen, to soak up their words, their experiences. And all the while, we know that what's running on their operating system while they move came from them. And thus, we lower the barrier to understanding, assuming they're applying words and focus to the thing that is, in fact, the the true priority. And What's interesting, I'll share at this point, we've just completed a study with my colleague, Ken Clark, stateside, and other collaborators. And we asked 135 some athletes and non-athletes at the collegiate level, we gave them cues that kind of span the knowledge of what to knowledge of how. So cues on internal stuff, technical body anatomy type cues all the way to external cues, push the ground away, to analogies, explode off the ground and gradually rise like a jet taking off. And not published yet, but our early analysis shows something in the order of 80% of people are going to choose language that falls into kind of this outcome, external, analogy-based thinking. And that reinforces that our natural default is to not go inward when we're moving, but to go outward. And the reason I'm sharing that is if you talk to a young child 
who's playing sport or even a teenager, an adult, and ask them, well, what do you think you should focus on? Assuming they haven't been inundated with overly technical information, they're usually not giving you these biomechanical answers. They're giving you analogies. They're giving you simple ideas that allow the movement as a whole to be expressed in terms of some clever idea, some clever relationship with the environment. It harkens back to the example I gave about my son talking about the handlebars being loud versus quiet. It allows them to subtly focus with nuance on moving in a way that is specific to the environment based on the language I invite them to think about or we invite them to come up with on their own. Gosh, um, again, masses, so much in there. And <laughs> so I'm trying to pick a thread from that. I'm, I'm really... Um, I'm really in, in, interested and, and not surprised at the um, that what you found was that outcome and analogy was probably picked up, and um, and I'm kind of thinking about that in terms of um, even just Gabriella Wolf's work mm -hmm. that, that I think was really made a difference with her, her optimal learning theory. Um, and if people are not familiar with that, it's I, it it's certainly something that's worth looking at where she recognized that actually, um, because mo movement is meaningful and normally we're moving with an intention to solve a movement puzzle, a problem of some description. And those analogies are allowing us um, to keep focusing on that, um, on, on, on what we're achieving, the outcome of the movement. Um, would you agree with, with well, that? Yeah, yeah. And Marion, let's just do a fun little activity. And I want okay. you to do this as well. Okay. So, 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 so it's, well, it's five o'clock somewhere and it's morning somewhere. So we'll cover all the Always. beverages. I, I want, <laughs> so, so everybody just, just put, and, and I'll, I'll get to the point of, of why this is important and spot on to what you're saying. If we put our hand out in front of us, let's put our hand out in front of us and just allow your hand to be open in just a non-specific way. And we're just going to play, you know, a, a little bit of, of Simon Says, right? So I want you to hold your hand as if you're holding a, a coffee cup, let's say. Hold the coffee cup. Now let's imagine we've just gone to a, a pub and we're holding our first pint. Now let's say it's a, a fancy party. Let's hold a martini glass. Uh, let's now say that we are going up on a hike and we're holding our big water bottle, right? Let's now imagine we are drinking a, a whiskey. It's late at night with friends and it's one of the round bottom uh, whiskey glasses. How might we hold it there? And so without even thinking, without even thinking, Marianne, were you able to change your hand more or less as I presented you with different beverages to hold? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm certain that both of us, based on how we're feeling right now, we'd want one of those beverages. And yes. what that shows us, what that shows us is we can move as if. We can present a virtual reality, a virtual reality, and act as if it is real, and act as if it is real. And so when we talk about the ecology of learning and environmental constraints and how movement is this dance, this relationship between us and the environment, we can recognize that we have all the other environments 
we've ever experienced that we can bring into the virtual reality we find ourselves in and move as if. And this is why analogies are so powerful, that if we can tap into the experiential background of the person we are working with, referencing other sports or other physical modalities that we know they can relate to, right? Absorb and release like a spring, stretch long like a band, gradually rise like a jet taking off, sprint out and up as if there's a steep hill in front of you. These are all proxies to the very simple beverage grabbing activity that we all did without even thinking. No head, shoulders, knees, and toes required. And so a lot of my work is about trying to help people recognize this ancient natural relationship between language and movement. And that is, we talked about this. language is based in something physical. The first time a child ever interacted with a glass, it wasn't with the letters G-L-A-S-S. It was with the physical sensory motor glass. Only then they gave it the label, the symbols, verbally or written form that we then call glass to signal to each other, hey, I'm thirsty, can you pass that glass to me? And by that same physical basis on which all language springs from, that in and of itself explains why analogy is such a powerful form of cueing within this province of knowledge of how. And that we can use language to alert you to experiences that have a movement signature that are somehow relatable to the movement you are now performing, availing of that history, bringing it into the present, and realizing that, oh, sprinting is also kind of like a jet taking off. It's the brilliant categorization and flexibility of the human mind. Coaches need to avail of this ancient feature of the human condition. And uh, do you know what, even in, in that little exercise that we did, one of the other things that I noticed as well as the fact that I can easily change was that they have an emotional, so when you talked about having whiskey mm. at the end of the night with a friend, I smiled. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there you go. It's been too <laughs> long, but I actually had a, a, a real visceral response to that analogy because of my, you know, previous not unfortunately recent experiences um bodies friends in scotland after you know it, there's a whole lot of other things that come with some of that are evoked with some of those analogies aren't there and i think i'm mindful of time but i'm thinking that's something else that's really powerful i mean obviously i'm i you know what's happening in real time with somebody's interaction with an environment is so important and I, I'm, it's really good that we've moved away from, like you say, some more of this um, uh, coaches thinking that what they need to do is treat someone like a marionette and they've got strings on them and they're, they're you know, or they're, it's a joystick coaching. But, and then like you said, there's no head, shoulders, knees and toes. But the power of language, mm. I think, goes, like you say, it's, it, is, it is emotional, it is social, it is is our, is our embodied movement. I think there's so much in there. And um, and I think it's, you know, it's easy to not recognize how powerful it is if you use it well. A hundred percent, you know, 
language is the way we, we signal the reality that we come from, the reality that we exist within. And people cannot forget, as you said eloquently there, language has a physical basis to the degree that if you read the word kick, hear the word kick, watch somebody kick, or you yourself kick, those are all going to sample the same portion of the primary motor cortex involved in the act of kicking. And so we oftentimes forget, even though we intuitively know this, that language and physical, psychosocial, emotional reality are inextricably linked together. I mean, even as you and I sit right here, if someone's standing wherever they are, just not behind the wheel of a car driving, if I was to say, harden your posture, soften your posture, show me what the posture of someone who is sad, show me the posture of someone who is confident. Think of music and your favorite lyrics ever, right? So quickly through words, through words, we can take someone on an emotional, psychosocial, physical tour. And that's the power that we have at our disposal when it comes to coaching. Ultimately, the point that you've been making throughout this, Marianne, is it's not about what makes sense to me. It's not about how it feels to me. Communication is not what is said. It is what is understood and embodied by the recipient. And so if we do not invite the athlete of any age, any level into the conversation at some point, we are missing literally the quarry, the raw material on which our language can be built from to help them ultimately achieve the goal that we are both there for, which is the continuous development of the skills that they pursue. Thank you. Yeah, that's, um, I think, a nice place to, to maybe think about um, ra wrapping up. And, and um, yeah, I know I've, I know I've sort of, <laughs> I feel like I've led a little bit in thinking about the collaboration and the importance of motivation. And because uh, uh, I think it's such, I think that's such an important parts like say that communication isn't about us just giving messages it's about what is received and understood and what that means mm. to the person who is who is receiving it um this might be a bit of a big ask to finish but i'm i'm curious if there's something that you apart from buying a book which i would recommend if there's something that you would recommend for coaches um to to just start to explore the power of language and cueing a little bit more or even just being a bit more mindful about how they're using it within their coaching practice well I think you've I think in your question is my suggestion and that is hopefully if a coach listening to this or even an athlete listening to this was not aware of how words and thoughts ultimately shape and inform skill learning, at least in large part, that that's step number one. Can we start to become aware? Can we come into contact with the words and the language we're using? Looking at not only the content of what we say, but also when we say it, why we say it. Uh, Julian Treasure, a friend of mine, he gives beautiful TED Talks on communication, talks about where are you speaking from? Where are you listening from? 
Are we speaking from a place of frustration and bias? Are we listening from a place of frustration and bias? And so initially just taking an inventory, is there a pattern to your communication? For example, do you provide knowledge of what through instruction? Then do you provide a simple cue to guide knowledge of how that they can apply during the movement? Then do you have a clear collaborative discussion at the end of that at some point during the session to ascertain, do I want to repeat the cue, refine it, or retire it altogether? Is there a structure of when, where, why, and how you communicate? If we can start to take in that inventory and understand how our language locker is organized, then from there, I think a lot of the concepts you and I have discussed and most certainly are outlined in my book, as well as Gabrielle Wolf's book, Attention and Motor Skill Learning, that will provide you then with the raw material, I would say, to better organize your language to get the most out of it, and then certainly how to upgrade the words you use before the athlete moves such that it drives better intention. But step one is just mindfulness. Come into contact with your language and be attentive to the impact it is making on the person in front of you. That's how I started, Marianne. It was simply that. Came into contact with my language, paid attention to the impact, for better or for worse it was making, and step by step, inevitably I wrote a book on the topic. And so if that pathway as a starting point worked for me, I know it'll work for others. <laughs> Great. We'll probably have loads of books in 10 years' time. No. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, thank you. That is, yeah, that's brilliant. I really, I really, really like that. And that, and, and that mindfulness, I mean, I, I certainly remember, um, I, I do still try and pay attention um, to what, not only what I say, but what I write. And I can be quite hard, harsh on myself because I recognize the importance of the language even written down in the things that I do. But um, just from being blown away by my undergraduate psych, um, I haven't paid as much attention <laughs> to it as you, but I, I am so, um, I'm so aware that it's such an important topic and it's been wonderful to see your book out. It's been wonderful to see more focus on this more recently with work that some other people are doing like Rob Mason, Hajiv saying, I know um, things about it. Also Andrew Wilson, who you've mentioned in, in just that, that there is a spotlight in a much more meaningful way, I think on language in coaching. And, and for me, that is, I can only be a good thing. 100%. Um, so thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I have so many notes. I still have so <laughs> many questions, but I can see that we've, I've already taken up more than an hour of your time. Um, I'm probably uh, likely to come back to you. I think there's still so many bits that we could explore and avenues in this um, in the future. So um, thank you so much, Nick. It's been great. Uh, Mary, it's a pleasure is all mine and, and always happy for another conversation. The world, the world needs more conversation. And so this is a beautiful platform you've presented to us. Thank you so much. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.